Uh, good morning to you. If you're new to Citadel Square, welcome. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We're going to talk uh, about suffering. <laughs> it's a terrible way to intro, isn't it? Uh, we can leave now. Uh, no, uh, welcome if you're new. We're starting a brand new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and find it, grab it, and turn to the New Testament uh, right after the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is where we're going to be. Uh, you were handed this study guide on the way in. Here's our goal with this study guide. Uh, this study guide has been put together by our team over the past uh, probably several months. I've been in the book of 2 Corinthians, even in the midst of our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we did is we took the entire sermon series and we built into it a way for you to engage with the scriptures in a real intentional way so that you have notes that you can track all the way through uh, with this book and in this series. Put your name in the front uh, and you'll be able to kind of build your knowledge of 2 Corinthians in an iterative way or a uh, a building block kind of way all the way through this series. So this was put together by our staff team. Uh, every single person on our staff team had a part in writing, editing, creating, and putting this into your hands. So our hope really is that it would bless you. You should have had one on your way in. If you didn't get one on your way in or found your way in here without one, pick one up on your way out. We've got one for everyone, okay? And that will help you uh, study and think and pray on what God wants to teach us through the book of 2 Corinthians. All right, 2 Corinthians. You got your Bibles? Y'all there? Turn there to two people have said yes so far. Are you in 2 Corinthians? All right, 2 Corinthians is where we're going to be. 2 Corinthians. We're just going to look at the first seven or so verses. You've got to spend a little bit of time talking about what is happening in Corinth. The Corinthian church is a church in process. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, you've got a lot of problems if you've read that book. You've got sexual perversion problems. You've got division in the church problems. You've got people getting drunk at communion, which is why we don't give you that much juice. Uh, you've got real issues that happen in the life of that church. And Paul, what we have in 2 Corinthians, first and 2 Corinthians, let me give you this, is really 2 and 4 Corinthians because you have lost letters between both uh, first, our first and second, which is a lost letter, a severe letter that Paul has written. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul references a previous letter. So what we have here through the preservation of the Spirit of God is exactly what we need to know to understand the issues that are at work in the Corinthian church. You have those in 1 Corinthians, and then you have those in 2 Corinthians. These are two big books in your New Testament where Paul has a lot to write about this church. This church faces uh, kind of a uh, real cultural difficulty. One of the big problems in the Corinthian church that you see both in 1st and in 2nd Corinthians is that the world has infiltrated the church. The ways of thinking, the ways of teaching, the ways of loving one another have been compromised in what this church ought to be. So Paul has to spend a lot of time unwinding the expectations and practices of many people, many Gentiles who come from a completely pagan experience and now arrive in this church together in Corinth, in an incredibly significant city, as we'll see here in a minute. This book really divides neatly into three big sections. In the first 
chapters 1 through 7, Paul talks about his ministry motivations. He talks about the gospel and what it's done. He's talked about the heart, really, that moves Paul to care and to love and to write to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians, in many ways, is Paul exposed. You see his heart for these people. You see him long for them to change into who Christ wants them to be. He acknowledges these threats that concern him. He's, uh, he desires for the Corinthian church, what he'll say is to open your hearts to us. Our hearts are wide open to you. So you see the heart of this apostle and the worries and the concerns that he has for what is going on in the Corinthian church. That's one through seven, the motivations. Then you have eight and nine where Paul's gonna talk about money. So this year we're gonna get into money. We're going to talk about what it means to give faithfully, to look at aligning our finances with the truth of what God is doing and to find real purpose in our generosity to give toward the things that God wants to do. And then finally, in the last three chapters of the book, four chapters of the book, chapters 10 through 13, Paul is going to show you what it means to be a true minister of the gospel. He's going to show you the marks that one of the tensions that shows up in the book of 2 Corinthians is there are false apostles who call themselves apostles and take that title and that name of apostle but don't operate on the same kind of integrity that Paul has to his ministry. And what he has to do in 2 Corinthians is not so much defend his apostleship. This church was planted because of Paul's faithfulness to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 18. But what he's got to defend against are people who claim to be apostles just like them, but who have different motives. Can that ever be a danger in a church? The, yeah, we, we, we want to follow the, the upfront people, the people who are the apostles, the people who are the leaders. But oftentimes what you don't get to see until lots of years of reaping and sowing are the motives of the leaders who teach the church. And Paul is going to draw that out in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10 through 13 to show you what it means to be a real apostle. So this is a, this is a great book. But today, like I said, we are going to start with suffering. You always get nervous. Don't you get nervous reading? Like you never want to read Job. You just don't, because you know if you come across Job in your Bible reading that sure enough, Satan's after you, right? Something's going to happen. And when you preach on suffering, uh, this theme in this um, these first few verses of the book of 2 Corinthians, um, they're probably some of the most explicit when it comes to pulling out a certain theme about suffering. When you read your Bible and you watch individuals suffer, a lot of times suffering is interpreted through the lens of what God is doing in you, right? James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because you know God is, you know, working hope and hope character, character perseverance, all that kind of stuff that God is working in us. When you look in other places of your Bible, you look at circumstances. And you recognize that God's people are afflicted by circumstances that are happening because of evil and wickedness around them. And what you see in those instances is that God is sovereign over circumstances and difficulties. If you read through the book of Acts, you recognize that the affliction and the difficulty that shows up in the life of the church only serves to advance God's purposes. 
that the church doesn't fail in Acts, but every time the boot of affliction comes down on the flame of the church, the embers spread and the gospel goes forward. So suffering, you can examine what God, uh, what is happening in you. You can ha- examine what's happening around you. But in this passage, what you get through Paul's writings is who God is to you in suffering. It's an incredibly meaningful passage. Paul is going to, uh, many times when Paul writes, he gives you theology and if and then and direct object, right? He builds kind of mathematically through the things that he writes. But in this passage, what Paul is going to do is take his experience, take his um, faithfulness to Christ and what he experienced in knowing God and who he is and then turn and apply it to us. He's going to turn and then apply it to the church, which is what you'll see as we go through this passage. Because for all of us, when we face affliction and we face suffering, one of the major questions we have is, who is God when I hit suffering? Isn't that your, don't you ask that? Who is he? Where is he? What is he doing? Can I count on him if I am going to face suffering this month, this year? Will he be there? And Paul, in these first seven verses, is going to come into that question and end saying, our hope for you is unshaken. And he's going to be stable and steadfast with that truth. All right? Let's pray one more time. Ask God for his grace as we study here this morning. Father in heaven, as we begin this book, for all that we are going to experience in the hearts and minds of people in this room, for all of what you have for us to teach us in this book, we pray that we would have soft hearts, open ears, open eyes to understand the things that you would teach us through your word. That just as we saw your hand work in us through the course of the book of Ecclesiastes, we pray that you would do exceeding abundant beyond what we could ask or imagine as we open our lives and our hearts to what you would teach us in this book. So, Father, for the few minutes that we spend here today, would you change us? Would you allow us to leave this place looking more like your son? No matter what circumstances are facing us, no matter what difficulties are ahead, we know that you don't waste those moments. So, Father, would you bless that ambition here as we study and read and learn and grow into the people that you would have for us to be? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, you know, when you read, uh, let me just pause right there. Uh, When you read uh, the epistles, a lot of times you you want to get past the first two or three verses, don't you? And you want to get into the meat. You kind of want to go yada, 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 Paul, we get it. Let's move on. But Paul is going to begin this letter with something that... uh, is true in other places, but is going to be particularly true in this book, as I've just mentioned. Look at what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. All through both the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament, the leaders of, that God has for his people are always chosen by God. It goes real bad when the people choose a Saul. Don't you agree? It goes good when God chooses a David. And when Paul begins this letter, he begins with a recognition that shows up in his other letters where he says, I am not my own. 
I didn't decide to become an apostle. I didn't get the degree and go into bu- in the business of apostleship. I had a divine calling upon my life, that my life was interrupted on the way to murder Christians when Christ appeared to me. As one, Paul says in Galatians, that is, he was one untimely born, that he calls himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. He recognizes when he begins that his call to apostleship comes from a divine commission from Jesus Christ, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, through God's decision, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is one of uh, Paul's disciples. And in this passage, Timothy is not a co-apostle. Timothy is a second-generation Christian as a result of the ministry of the apostles. He's a brother. He's a pastor. He's discipled by Paul, but he is not an apostle. There is no apostolic succession in that way. That Paul has that divine command and commission from Christ, and now Timothy, who now ministers to the, second, to the uh, Corinthian church, who ministers to the Ephesian church, is an individual with Paul as a co-sender of this letter. So those are your authors. Look at your recipients in the end there. To the church of God that is at Corinth. Now I'll talk about Corinth in just a second. With all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. I'll show you where this is, but just before we look at that, keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul does this in both, both 1 and 2 Corinthians. He localizes the words that he is about to write to the Corinthian church. And then he places them in the context of a universal reality. Is it good to know that God is at work in Charleston and in Costa Rica? Amen? That he is not just the God of Costa Rica and we don't know what he's doing in America. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now come back to 2 Corinthians. Why does Paul do that? Because Paul has to make sure that you know that God is not just at work in your zip code, but that God is at work in every zip code. And the thing that is going to unify the people of God in this passage is their experience of God when they face similar afflictions and struggles, both in Achaia, in Corinth, in Charleston, in Bermuda, in Costa Rica that the people of God are united because of the will of God and calling people to himself in every single zip code around the world. So Paul balances this truth of God that now we read in Charleston in 2022 with the letter that they're going to receive in Corinth in the first part of the first century. Okay, so there's your, let me show you where this is. We've got a slide put together here, put together by... Uh, Kenny Gibson. You see uh, where Corinth there. Corinth is a current day city in Greece itself. Corinth was uh, destroyed by the Romans as the transition between the Greek period and the Roman period happened. It was destroyed about AD or BC 150, 150 BC by a Roman general. By about 45 BC, it was re-inhabited by Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar took the city in its ruins and he sent to it predominantly freed slaves and soldiers. Corinth, as you see, between that, that peninsula, which is actually an island now, is called the Peloponnesus. 
It's the center spot between Eastern Greece and Western Greece. And as such, you have major trade that would come through Corinth. And Corinth as a city has lots of problems. It has um, lots of temptations for the church. It has sexual perversion problems. It has financial problems. It has people who are coming out of a pagan lifestyle who are of all strata socially. One of the things that happened when this city was repopulated by freed slaves and soldiers is that you didn't have an aristocracy that was typically entrenched in most Roman cities. So then in Roman cities, you had the elite and then you had the people. You had the white collar and the blue collar. It wasn't like that in Corinth. When Paul wrote, as many as 30% of this entire city were slaves. So what it created in a church was a, or in a church and in a city that, let me correct myself, in a city is a lot of opportunity because you didn't have a glass ceiling in this city, which means you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you could really make a name for yourself in the variety of opportunities that a brand new city under Roman rule would create for you. So you can imagine a lot of individually driven, people with sketchy pasts, all coming to church together with lots of temptations in this city. One commentator said it was like San Francisco during the gold rush. Anything could happen in this city. It's like the Wild West out there. So that's the city to which Paul writes. There are significant problems, significant temptations that show up in the context of the church and are real in the life of the city. So, There's your church of God that is in Corinth. Look at verse 2 with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts, I think, 11 of his 13 letters with grace to you. Now, Paul's going to talk about a lot of corrective issues that need to happen in this church, but anytime that you open up one of Paul's epistles as he addresses the issues that happen in the context of a church, Anytime that you open up the word of God and God begins to address issues in your life where you begin to be confronted with the truth about God and what God wants to do in you and what he needs, uh, desires to do through you, the areas of life where you need to repent, you need to know that God begins that process in our lives because of his grace. That it is God's gracious intention to intervene and intercept your life with correction. Amen, Christians? That we don't operate in such a way where we try to get our life together to receive grace. We order our life because we have received grace from God. We have received the undeserved, unearned, right standing with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And now my relationship with God is one of divine, what he says next, peace. When I come to God through the work of Jesus Christ, I never have to doubt that Jesus is mad at me. I never have to worry as if our relationship isn't good or secure. It is forever and eternally and for always secure because of what Jesus has done for us, right? Amen. That's the confidence we have in our relationship with God. I didn't earn it. Christ earns it. Christ keeps it. I can't lose it. I am forever and always his. Now, I want to draw your attention to one word here that's going to be all over this passage. You see what he says there? Grace to to you and peace from God our Father. Our or we is going to be mentioned 15 times in seven verses. 
And what Paul is going to do as he moves his way through this passage is talk about something that is true for the apostolic delegates. It's true for those who are on the front lines of gospel ministry. And then what he's going to say by the time we end here today is that it's going to be true for you. Paul says, it's true for me. I've experienced this particular reality of God and who he is, but you can experience too, it too. And Paul, with great confidence, from great experience, now will minister to the Corinthian church and minister to you and me in 2022. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus uses that term blessed, doesn't he? Blessed are the mourn, or blessed are the, uh, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? But Paul, when Paul uses it, he, he's not just, well, he is in a sense. What he's doing is he's, he's talking about how great God is. It's as if Paul takes his own spiritual life and you, you listen in to his perspective on how he talks about God. If you were to just take 30 seconds right now and write about your relationship with God, what would you write? What would come out of you if someone said to you, who is God to you? What is he like to you? Give me 30 seconds of, of what that means to you. If we were to listen into your prayer life, listen into your spiritual life, what would bubble out of you? And we get a moment here for Paul when he does that for us. When, he's, when he writes and he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he again responds now with this grace and peace blessing. And then he says, let me tell you about God from my perspective. Let me tell you about God as I see him and as I have experienced him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are younger, I'll let you define that. And you talk to somebody who is older, and I will let you define that as well. You will find, if you are younger in the faith and you talk to older senior saints, you will recognize something that, if, that not only that they have been walking with God for longer than you, but it seems that they know God differently than you do. They have experiences in life where God wasn't just theory to them. It wasn't just intellectual truth or chapter and verse that they know, but God became real to them at the level of their soul. And you can quote verses to older men and older women who've walked with God for a while, and what will come out of them is a maturity and a steadfastness and a security because they know what it means to walk with God. Amen? Older? They've been through it. And what Paul is going to give us here is a, a little bit of personal experience. Because these older saints, maybe it was sickness. Maybe it was a marriage that fall, fell apart. Maybe it was vocational difficulties. Maybe it was financial difficulties. But they walked with God through a valley and God became not just theory, 
but he really became provider. He really became friend. He really became forgiver. He really became the great physician. And Paul is going to open up his spiritual experience that you would see and understand who God is to Paul. And Paul begins with worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives you two titles that for Paul become a jumping off point. For Paul, this jumping off point and understanding who God is fuels all of the counsel that he's about to give, that his theology is rooted in such a way that he can give counsel to others. He doesn't say, believe in a God that I don't understand and that I haven't experienced. He says, this is who God is because I know it to be true, because he showed up for me. Look at the first title. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Now that's a consistent Old Testament idea. In Exodus 34, when God revealed himself to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. It's one of the first things that God says about himself when he responds to Moses' desire to see his glory. The mercy of God is seen all throughout the Psalms. And here, when Paul says that he is the father of mercies, he's saying that just like, you know, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement, He's the, Barnabas was the essence of what it means to be an encourager in his spiritual life and in his relationship with others. Here the picture is that God is the source of all mercy. Now, when we talk about mercy, there are two big ideas with mercy. One of them has to do with sin. And we're all thankful for God's mercy. That he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Right? Amen. But would you keep your finger in 2 Corinthians, turn over to Psalm 123. Let me show you this real quick. On one hand, mercy has to do with um, restraint. God doesn't give us what our sins deserve. Look at Psalm 123, though. There's another element of mercy that, that I want to show you that really is the essence of what Paul is talking about here. Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heaven. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has what? Mercy upon us. Look at what verse 3 says. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Mercy isn't uh, sin-based here. It's not God restraining his wrath and not giving us what our sins deserve. Mercy here has to do with relief, doesn't it? It has to do with God drawing near to those who are experiencing contempt, affliction, difficulty, persecution. And that's the context in which it's used here in 2 Corinthians. Come on back. So there's your first one, that God is the father of mercies. He's the source of mercy. Of all of those who need it, he draws near. There are two kind of words for mercy in the New Testament. One has to do with like a criminal would ask of a judge. I need mercy. The other has to do with those who are suffering. God, would you bring relief? And it's this word here. 
God, would you show up when it is hard? And Paul says, that's the God that I know. That he is the source of all the relief that we need when we face affliction and difficulty. Not only that, he's the God of all comfort. Ten different times he's going to use this word in seven verses. Comfort, 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 all the way through. He's the God of all comfort. That comfort for God and for his people isn't that God just acknowledges their difficulty and has compassion. Isn't just that God sees and hears their pain. But it has to do with God acting when his people cry out to him. What happens in Exodus when his people cry out to him? God raises up a deliverer who goes and rescues and redeems his people from their affliction and their suffering. And he brings his people to himself. So it's particularly defined and connected to God's activity of comfort. And Paul says the same thing. Not only is he the source, but he is the one who has given me comfort, the God of all comfort. Look at verse four. Here's what God does. You have his essential attribute in verse three. You have his activity in verse four who comforts us in all our affliction. If you're taking notes, you want to circle all in verse three and all in verse four. That he's the God of all comfort in every place and in every time. In every situation that Paul has faced, he has needed a God who is, um, I don't know what the word is. I should have thought about this before I got up here. (sighs) Anyway, we'll figure it out. Keep going. Verse four, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Now, Paul's life has been marked by affliction. Did you know that? From the minute Paul was called by Jesus, Paul experiences Jesus. Jesus blinds him. Uh, Paul, as a blind man, goes now and hangs out in a house. God says, hey, Ananias, you're a man of God. I need you to go over and lay hands on Paul and give him his sight back. And Ananias says, you mean the terrorist? The guy who's persecuting Christians. God, I'm pretty sure that this is not good planning on your part. And God says something interesting to Ananias. He says this, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the beginning of Paul's life, of experiencing and knowing Christ, he knew he was in for it. He knew that suffering was going to accompany his life. who comforts us in all of our affliction. You know what that word affliction is? It's a word that means pressure. You ever face pressure because you're a Christian? You ever face life pushing down on you, pushing in around you? And Paul says, when you face that, God becomes the God of all comfort. God shows up in those places. Look at the remainder. Now, one of the temptations that we have when we face suffering, specifically for being a Christian, is that suffering, one of my great internal fears that I don't talk to people a lot, so don't tell anybody about this. One of the struggles that I have is that I greatly fear suffering being for nothing. That that when I face suffering, that God is not in control, I'm just at the mercy of life. And the difficulty and hardship that I face, oftentimes I face that temptation in my heart and in my soul, is that God is not in control, God doesn't see what's going on, God didn't know this was coming, and that God isn't gonna do anything to give me relief. 
And what Paul does when he talks about this father of mercies and this God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, gives us a so that phrase. You see that in the passage? Anytime you see so that, it's a purpose statement. Why in the world would God be the God of all comfort, the father of mercies to us when we face affliction and persecution? So that, watch, here's the reason. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God of all comfort, all our affliction, any that anyone experiences anywhere. It's like God's comfort is designed not just to be experienced individually, but God's comfort is designed to be transferable. That it's not supposed to ultimately rest in me so that I show up in the context with other Christians and go, gosh, I know God is a God of comfort. You don't? Well, that's uh, tough. That's tough. Let's sing some worship songs. That's not how it works. God says, I experienced the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, who gave us affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. No matter what is going on, in any time and in any place when you are facing difficulty for naming the name of Christ, Paul says that the God of all comfort and Father of mercies is available to give you comfort there. With the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, in this book, Paul is comforted by two big realities. One is by people. That over in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, God who comforts the downcast sent Titus to me. And it's people who come alongside Paul and provide the very comfort that God is giving. The second thing that comforts Paul is when people respond in right ways to spiritual truth. See, when you're a Christian, I'm sure you have found this if you are a Christian, and you go through life, you feel the darkness of life differently. You feel the difficulties and the hardship of people that you will see who may look great on the outside, but you know have no relationship with God and are a burning wasteland on the inside. And it makes you grieve and weep and pray and cry in ways that if you didn't know Christ, you wouldn't have before. It's a rigged deal for us as Christians because all of a sudden God opens our minds, opens our hearts to understand what is really going on in a world that is captured by the devil to do his will and we pray and long that people might turn from darkness to light. That when you are a Christian, all of a sudden you are not a fish going downstream, you're swimming upstream. When you are a Christian, every single movement of faithfulness is uphill. Isn't that annoying? You have felt that, amen? That you know what it, ha- what it means for, to discipline yourself for godliness. To feel the pressure of life and friendships and families and people at work and people on the campus who don't believe what you believe, who don't agree with the things that you say. And you feel pained in your heart. Verse 5. 
Four, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If you were to put that, any math people, if you put that on two sides of the equation, they equal, don't they? As many sufferings and difficulties and hardships as you have are equaled by the sufficient and complete, abundant comfort we have in who? Christ. That in Christ, watch what he says here, for as we share abundantly in Christ's what? Christ's suffering. These are not sufferings where you've lost your keys. These are not the sufferings of an inability to find a parking spot. Those are not these sufferings. Now, there are sufferings that come with life in a sinful world, amen? There are difficulties and hardships and sickness and depressions and, and anxieties, and we are called as a church to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But the sufferings here are distinctly cruciform sufferings. They're distinctly Christ-based sufferings. Paul experienced, you can read it in 2 Corinthians 10, to cheat and read ahead, Okay? And when you do that, you will find Paul, who's a night, and a, a night and a day in the deep. He's been beaten with rods. He's been in danger by persecutions and robbers on the road. And his countrymen hate him and let down a wall in a basket. And he's faced all sorts of persecutions and afflictions for naming the name of Jesus. How did Jesus walk through life? Jesus had friends who disagreed with him, family who disagreed with him, political powers who had problems with him. That there was a constant uh, upstream reality to Christ's life and ministry. And Paul says, when we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, when I go through it as an apostle, we also share the comfort that comes from Christ. That our identification with him is, is participation in the suffering that he's called us to. Paul says in Philippians, it has been granted to you to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. It is part of the curriculum, Christians. But along with that is a second person of the Trinity, divine infusion of Christ's comfort to you. He does not make us go through those sufferings alone. He is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he draws near to those who experience the rebuke and the loss of reputation and the difficulty of what it means to stand for Christ at work and on our campus and in a sinful day to name the name of Jesus and order your life appropriately. And God promises to be there. Verse six, if we are afflicted, watch this, this is great. It is for you, this is the first time Paul says this second person possessive thing. I can't remember what it's called. If we are afflicted, who's we in context? Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy on missionary journeys. Paul and Timothy sharing the gospel. Paul and Timothy seeing conversions. Paul and Timothy beginning churches. Paul and Timothy being persecuted, being run out of town, being stoned. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. It costs somebody something to share the gospel with you. Do you know that? It costs somebody something to disciple you. 
Do you believe that? For us to have an impact in this generation and the next, it will cost us something. It will cost us reputation. It will cost us money. It will cost us being misunderstood by people. Imagine your entire life being dedicated to saying, I want to tell as many people as possible about Christ who was born, Christ who died, and Christ who rose again, and Christ who's coming again. I will do that as many times as possible till I die. That's Paul's life. And every single thing about his life faced opposition in a world that is darkened. And he says, if we're afflicted, Paul says this in in a letter to Timothy. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. What does it cost me that someone might come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? I don't care. I'll pay it. If we're afflicted and it causes me pain and I experience persecution, church, it's for your comfort and your salvation. Corinth, it's for your comfort and your salvation that you might come to know Christ. If we are comforted, it is for whose comfort? Your comfort. Paul disciples through experiencing God and then turning around and handing that to people. I knew God in the context of affliction and persecution and God was the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Guess what? It's for your comfort as well. I recognize that what God has done in me is not just for me, but something that God wants to do through me. It's for your Comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. When you experience, Corinthians, what I have experienced, then you will experience the comfort of God. It's guaranteed. I promise you. Now, when can I be certain of experiencing the comfort of God? Don't you hate it? A lot of times, here's how I pray. I face affliction, persecution, a little bit. Not a lot. And I go, God, take this away. I don't like this at all. I'd rather not go through this. And Paul says, how do we experience the comfort of Christ? When you patiently endure. It's a word that means to stay under. It's as if the weight and the pressure of life comes down on your shoulders and you just stay. What do you want to do? Get rid of the weight. What do you want to do? Get out from underneath it. And Paul says, when you experience affliction, when you experience persecution, when you experience the cost of being a Christian, God will meet you right there when you stay under it. Now, Paul, there's something here that I think is really important for us to to recognize. A lot of times, uh, when I want the comfort of God, when I face an uphill battle for the Christian faith in my own life, in my own heart, and this comes, look, you don't have to be a full-time missionary to experience the comfort of God. Do you know that? Let me apply this, like, Let's say that you're living out the convictions of the gospel in your marriage. It will cost you something. Married folks, amen? Don't mumble. You know. You're like, oh, I don't know, maybe. If you're choosing 
to disciple your kids in this generation, you will face affliction. You will face pain of trying to put those gospel lessons into those hard hearts. Amen? If you are doing things in your life, in your workplace, that model integrity because of who Jesus is, you will face pressure. You will face people who don't understand and think you are stupid for praying to a God you don't see. And the temptation in a passage like this, remember what James says? James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God, right? The tension in a passage like this is thinking about the people in this Corinthian church who have all sorts of temptations to make sure that they can be on good terms with the world and still have the comfort and the intimacy with God. And the problem in this passage is that for us to have and know God as a God of comfort, for us to have and to know our Heavenly Father as the source of mercy in our lives, in short, for us to have intimacy with God, because that's what this is. That's this whole passage is about how Paul knows God, how Paul experiences God, and how you can experience God. But for us to experience God the way Paul experiences God means we have to have the same priorities that Paul has. You don't get intimacy without priority. You don't. You don't experience God in this way unless you join your life to Christian priorities. Unless you decide, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what it costs me. No matter how I'm misunderstood. Jesus, it's you and me and whatever we need to go through, whatever valley, whatever difficulty, whatever misunderstanding, whatever loss of reputation, financial strength and ability that I have in, in my hope in this life, God, whatever it is, I want to trade all that and I want to know you. Would you align my heart to your heart? Would you give my life the priorities that you want? Because if you have that ambition in your heart, if you say, God, I want your priorities to be my priorities, then watch this. You are guaranteed. You are guaranteed to know and experience God in a way that you cannot in the world. Do you hear me? That is Paul's promise. Now watch this. Watch verse 7. This is so good. This is so good for Paul to say because Paul puts the, the hands of the Corinthian church into his hands. Paul's like a good tour guide. He says you're going to go down. You're going to take a left. You're going to face some hardship. But watch this. God's going to meet you there. Isn't that good? You're not going to go through suffering alone. God's going to meet you there. He's not going to forget about you. God's going to meet you there. You're not in this alone. I've been there. God's going to meet you there because he met me there. Verse 7, our hope for you is what? Unshaken. It is unshaken. I guarantee you, I promise you that you will meet him in the furnace of affliction. Don't you want that? 
Is there that heart in you? Paul writes in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. God, whatever fire I have to walk through, I can take heart because I know you're there with me. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, right? Watch this. First future tense verb we found. You when? You will also. What's it going to take? You're going to have to trust Christ. How hard is it going to be? I don't know. It's going to be hard. You're going to face affliction? Yep, it's going to be difficult. But let me tell you, on the other side, you will know God like you have not known him before. You will lay claim to titles about God that were only theory to you in the past. That when you begin to build your life in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, you will know Jesus Christ in a way that you never have before. That's the promise of those who build their life on the cross. Father, for these few minutes as we've looked into your word and we confess things that maybe we haven't gone through, Maybe we're not facing suffering right now. Maybe we're not facing difficulty right now, but this is such an encouraging passage to challenge us and to let us know that when we do, you will be there. Father, for those who are in this room who feel like it's, um, that their Christian life is an individual adventure, One of the things this text shows us is that we need one another. We need those who have gone before. We need those who know Christ better than we do. We need those who have experienced Christ in the valley to to show us the way. So Father, as we take seriously the call to discipleship that you gave to your disciples, it said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As we make our lives distinctly Christian, distinctly cross-focused. Father, we look forward to meeting you in the fire. That you would change us, you would shape us, you would do things in us, Father, that we didn't expect, but that demonstrate that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.